Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 219, and today's guest is Florian Otto, co-founder and CEO of Cedar. The world of medical billing is incredibly complex, and let's face it, most times it's a mystery from the consumer's point of view. The descriptions of service provided are in codes, and how to make a payment is just not simple. It was through a challenging medical billing experience with his wife, where Florian saw firsthand how the process was broken. As a serial entrepreneur and former physician, the light bulbs went off, where he saw an opportunity to radically transform this industry. Not only was it a situation where you could digitize the process and make it more consumer-friendly, but it was an opportunity to fundamentally redefine the patient experience. Thus, Cedar was born. Cedar has been scaling aggressively and has tremendous momentum. The company recently announced a $200 million Series D round of funding at a $3.2 billion valuation. And they also announced a definitive agreement to acquire UDA Health, where the combined companies will offer the only complete financial technology platform in the healthcare industry. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like how ideas are easy to come by, but his advice on the hard part, which is how to execute. Florian's background story in terms of his early career in medicine to his transition to McKinsey's healthcare practice and what this experience taught him. Launching a daily deal site in Brazil, which was acquired by Groupon. The full story behind Cedar and all the details on the company's platform and growth ahead. Why building a diverse workforce is such a competitive advantage and so much more. Okay, quick side note, as I highlighted, there is tremendous momentum at Cedar, and they are obviously hiring aggressively. You can check out all their job openings on VentureFizz by going to their company page, which is VentureFizz.com backslash Cedar, and you'll see lots and lots of opportunities listed there. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Florian. Florian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk because you have a career path that I think so many people would, uh, you know, just love to experience because it has so many just directions and you've, you know, had success in each direction. So it just shows, I think people that there's endless possibilities with, with what you can do for your career. But before we get into the heart of that, because there's a lot to talk about with your career, I wanted to talk about something uh, else that I think is also a good example of things that um, you've accomplished along the way, and that's being able to execute, right? So founders oftentimes have great ideas. You know, it's almost to the point where ideas are not the hard part. It, the success of a company really comes down to the execution and the de- and the details. So, so what are your thoughts around that topic? Um, yeah, I hundred percent agree with what you what you said. And um, the idea, I mean, um, just look at the idea of Cedar. Is it really a great idea to somehow make the patient financial experience better? Yeah, I mean, so, so, right? I would say it's not a bad idea, but it's also definitely not very innovative. But the, then um, what makes the real big difference is literally executing that extremely well. And that's the reason why Cedar has success and improves the lives of millions of patients. So it's the same with, um, yeah, do do you think Facebook was a great idea? No, it was literally copied, right? Google, was that a great idea? I was just going to bring up Google search engine. They didn't invent the search engine. <laughs> not not at all. So I think there's an interesting saying. I actually think it's from, from Peter Thiel, one of our investors, that you don't need to be the first, but you should be the last, right? <laughs> and I strongly believe in that. So, um, so, so, so the real difficult thing is not finding the idea. Um, but executing the idea and, of course, being passionate about it because you only execute well if you're really passionate about it. 
And that's a good point. I think passion is very key. And like, why do you think the details are where entrepreneurs usually get like the stumbling blocks for building a successful company? I think it's a very good question. And and I think it's, um, it's, it's of course, multifactorial. I think one of the top reasons is entrepreneurs give up. Um, building a company is very, very hard. And you think right now that Cedar was always a success and you only want to talk about the successes. Oh my God, it was not, I guarantee you. And it was hard and it still is hard, right? And I think the number one thing is entrepreneurs give up. Um, I mean, the number two thing is they probably run out of money, but very often in, in today's time, it's actually not that difficult to get money if you are passionate about it and the problem somehow makes sense. There are, of course, I would say a few businesses where just businesses don't make any sense. So it's very tough for them to survive. Or it might also be a problem just um, which is back to the execution on the founding team. So if you right now are um, a non-engineer and you want to go into software, you better get a co-founder who is just absolutely amazing in technology. Otherwise, you don't get started. So it's an execution problem. So back to this point on ideas might be important for the macro. Is there a macro kind of tailwind on the business or a headwind? But you know what? It's not the big thing. I literally think it's about the execution, not giving up and yeah, having a winning team. All right, let's rewind the clock. So uh, the foundational years, where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Germany. So pretty, I I would say, um, mainstream German middle class, uh, my my, uh, back in Bremen, it's a town close to Hamburg. Um, Both my my parents were working. So I mostly grew up with uh, a nanny, um, where I attribute a lot of, um, yeah, she definitely did, um, I think, a lot of um, good work of working with me on my homework and all the stuff in schooling. I'm very grateful for her because both of my parents were full-time employed. Yeah, and then um, after school, so in Germany, you have a little bit longer um, high school. When I was 19, I started university um, and started uh, studying medicine in Freiburg, which is in the southern part of the country. Yeah, so this is one of the original directions of your career. You started going down that path of more medicine and dentistry, right? Correct, exactly. So I started studying medicine, of course, not knowing which field of um, uh, of medicine I'm really getting excited about. And then I got a lot of excitement about this maxillofacial surgery because it's something that um, is basically limited um, to one part of the body but extremely diverse diagnosis, right? You do a lot of traumatology, you do some some cancer surgery, you do orthogonatic surgery, you deal with small children for the cleft palates. So it really became very interesting to me in terms of surgery. Did my PhD um, in that department, so I was very getting excited also about the research and uh, doubled down on that. Okay, so you you know went down this path and you got your you know your PhD, which is an accomplishment. It's amazing, but then you change directions and go into management consulting. So so what kind of turned the path there? Yeah, it's a very good question, and and I think it's it's a few things. So so the very first thing um, that 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 I got um, a bit disappointed as being a doctor is the following: if you really as a surgeon want to be good at something. You need to do the same surgery again and again and again. If you really want to be good at it, it needs to be 100, 200 times. And then it becomes a little bit monotonous. So that's the first thing. Monotony is a problem. Second thing is, if you want to do the interesting surgeries, you need to stay employed at a hospital. 
because otherwise as a maxillofacial surgeon, you literally will um, pull the wisdom teeth, you might drill some implants, but that's pretty boring surgery, I would say. And then the last piece, which really draw me into business is um, it's not really scalable because you have two hands to work with. You can treat one patient at a time. And yes, of course, you can be 30% better. You can be a little bit faster. You can be um, maybe working a little bit longer, but you have limited. That's You're just limited by your two hands, right? And you're at 24 hours in the day and you also should sleep a bit. So it's not very scalable. And what attracted me on business is that good decisions and good execution can impact millions of people. So that attracted me to then go into management consulting. And that was more why I joined management consulting. I didn't understand much about business at that point. And they have a very good training program for, they are called exots. And these exots are basically people that are non-business background. Um, and for me, it was either doing an MBA or um, uh, joining a consulting company. And I studied a lot until then with my PhD, the dual degree, that it was time also yeah, to make some money. <laughs> so obviously, you got a lot of uh, real world experience at McKinsey. And then you decided to, to move to Brazil and then start a company. So, so what? OK, now we got the next direction. So what prompted that decision? Yeah, so, so, it's, so it's two different um, uh, triggers, right? The first is moving to Brazil, and then the second is to start a company. Because I, because I moved to Brazil for, uh, for the consulting company for McKinsey when I worked there. So, um, so I basically um, uh, knew Brazil from my uh, work in hospitals. So I did during my um, studies, I did voluntary work in public hospitals where I treated uh, patients in these uh, public hospitals that were in need of for staff and really fell in love with the country, um, learned the language, uh, so was pretty fluent in Portuguese already and just felt that this was the country I wanna live in for some time at least. So I transferred from Munich to um, Rio de Janeiro um, uh, for my work at McKinsey. And then 2010 started a company in Sao Paulo, um, same business model as Groupon. And then Groupon bought the business and I was then CEO of Groupon Brazil for three years. Now, how did you come up with the idea? Like, did you notice Groupon and the daily deals happening in the US and was like, wait, Brazil doesn't have this opportunity. And how did you even get it started? Right. So you were, you know, medicine, healthcare consulting. Now I'm going to start a daily deal site. So like there's the twists and turns that I love about your background. Yeah, it's, a, it's of course, a very interesting question. And back to a point, the idea is not really the most important thing. To be clear, this was not a brand new idea. We knew that this business model works in the US. So there were a few reasons on why we got excited about this. I think the very first was, it is a business model that just makes sense for consumers. So we had the strong feeling it works in Brazil as well. The second thing, it was a business model where you need to have very strong local knowledge and local execution. So unlike, for example, Facebook or Airbnb, where literally the, the platform scales through the entire world is not the case at Groupon, because the real most important thing is to get these good deals with emergents. Um, and then, of course, we wanted to have a business model that is somehow I would almost call it straightforward because it was the first venture and really starting a company for me and my co-founder. So you wanted to do something that is a bit more straightforward and not super complex. And all of that fit actually pretty well for, uh, for this Groupon business model, or it was called Club Urbano. Um, 
But on the other side, also, it was probably a business where neither of us right now said we want to do this for the next 20 years. Um, and that's the reason why we partnered with Groupon very early on. They invested in us and then took over the company. And we basically stayed on as uh, uh, leading uh, CEO of Groupon um, Brazil. And um, then after three years, phased out. So how did you even like get that going, right? So how, did you just reach out to the corporate development person at Groupon and said, hey, I'm thinking of starting this. You don't have it yet. Invest into us. Like, and like, because that's, you know, not an easy thing for an entrepreneur just to kind of cold outreach or get success in that manner. Yeah, it's, a, it's of course not easy, but in the end, I think you always need to try. And that's one of these entrepreneurial spirits. Even if the chances are low, you better do it. You very likely get rejected, but you still should do it because there is a chance that this works. And might you get an, a reply? Yeah, very likely you get a, even a reply. Might the deal be really bad for you? Very likely. But still, you need to try to get the opportunity. And I think opportunity maximization is the very important piece, especially in the beginning. And I would imagine, I don't know if uh, Groupon had the, the brand recognition, but assuming that they did, that would have helped your business as far as being credible. It's actually interesting. So I don't think Groupon too much um, internationally because it is pretty local business. So it had a big brand in the US, but not too much in Brazil. In Brazil, literally nobody, nobody knew the business yeah. because they were not operating there. So it wasn't much brand recognition, I would say. So once the acquisition did happen, like you were running, you know, CEO of, of Brazil, what did that experience teach you? <laughs> Lots of things. And I made a lot of mistakes where right now I look back and say, oh my God, <laughs> that was definitely <laughs> not, not, not one of my brightest moments. But overall, it's, I, I mean, there, there are a few learnings that I got off it. And, and running a company in Brazil is, of course, very different from the US and so on. But I think the very first thing that I learned there, when you are in this hyper growth phase, like Groupon was just blitz scaling um, uh, and you needed to grow to, I think we had 700 people over two and a half years hired. So it was extremely explosive growth, um, was hiring very, very good uh, leadership. And I think that's one of the things, first of all, it's not that easy to find in Brazil because a lot of the highly qualified people either stay in the US or they start their own companies. It's just a little bit thinner talent pool. Um, and secondly, we didn't spend enough time on that. And that is one of the biggest problems that you can do because you can never scale yourself up to the moment yeah, that you become really the big company on your own. Your ability to scale is basically limited on your ability to hire. Mm -hmm. All right. So what did you do next? Yeah. After, so after I, um, uh, I quit uh, Groupon, took a few months off, which was definitely necessary. Uh, and then I joined ZocDoc um, as their VP of sales. And it was a very interesting, I think, on how it came there. So the first was my initial job description was actually to build up ZocDoc International. So Latin America and Europe. And then after working a few months on this project with the team, with the leadership team here, it became clear that international is probably not going to make sense for ZocDoc. And they invited me to become um, the VP of sales here in New York. And I was actually very grateful for, uh, for doing this for the following reason. Before I was, so when I did uh, Groupon, I was the CEO. I was not really ready for being the CEO. 
I was inexperienced. I did a lot of mistakes, also did some things well, yes, but a lot of mistakes. And working as an executive with a more experienced leadership team, like at ZocDoc, gave me a lot of learning opportunity. And that's also when I moved here to the US. So got to know healthcare. I was always passionate about healthcare because of my background. It was great to work with an experienced leadership team. Um, and I also strongly believe that if you want to work in healthcare technology, go to market and sales is extremely important. So overall, I really got excited about the problem and about the company and yeah, had a fantastic time there. All right. So Cedar, which you talked about earlier, like, you know, Hey, we're not solving a unique problem yet. There's gotta be a reason why no one else has tried to tackle it. And I'm assuming because it's very complex. I mean, the nuances of billing and healthcare. So, A, let's talk about what prompted the idea and then B, getting started because it's, it's a health, you know, it's healthcare, it's regulated, it's codes, it's built, you know, it's just like all, so, so it's, it's not an easy thing. No, for, for sure. And, and uh, even if the idea seems easy, um, it is a complex problem. And I think healthcare billing you're among two regulated industries. It is extremely complex, literally integrating with, with old IT systems and so on, but we can get to that afterwards. So what prompted the idea was more a personal problem. My wife had a really bad billing experience here in New York. So she fainted on the street, got admitted to the emergency room. We swiped the credit card for the co-payment and then thought everything was done. A month later, she got a stack of paper um, from, uh, from the hospital literally in codes that she couldn't understand. She wanted to log into the portal, didn't accept Google Chrome. So I don't know what, uh, what could have, maybe, maybe something like Netscape would have worked. Um, and another month later, she got an invoice from the imaging center where literally there was a slip of paper asking for credit card information to fill it in, put a stamp on it and mail it back. And then it comes worse, half a year later, a debt collector caught her for a, call, for, for a bill from the lab company that she never received. So she changed her address and they built her old address and then um, had, uh, yeah, was of course a huge problem for it. So she told me, never take me back to that hospital. And then I was thinking, okay, it makes actually sense because she lost trust in this hospital. So if the billing department is so messed up, how should be the medical department organized? So I really, really appreciated that. Okay, well, what do you do as, as an entrepreneur? You say, okay, this is a problem for her. Is that a big problem? Okay, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to just look on Yelp or Google reviews and you see the number one problem is always right. billing. It's always the same. Great doctor, bad billing. Yeah. Right? The, the second biggest complaint is actually parking. So I didn't get excited enough about the parking problem <laughs> because I'm based in New York. <laughs> so let's go with the billing problem. And then, of course, you start to really drill down. That's not the moment when you think you want to start a company. Mm -hmm. That's when you start your, your research. And then you said, okay, how big is the problem? Then we found out that um, in the US, there are 50 million, five zero million people wow. with a bad credit score because of medical debt. Imagine that. 50 million people have a bad credit score because of medical billing. Yes, it gets even worse. Half of them have otherwise a clean credit score and the median outstanding balance is 250 bucks. Oh. So clean, clean credit score, 250 bucks. We understand this is not ability to pay, right? Yeah, exactly. And so what could it else be? It's not ability. Is it the willingness to pay? 
wait, I believe in the good of the people. Everybody in general wants to pay the bill, right? Mm -hmm. How many people run out of the restaurant without paying? Very few. However, only 50 cents on the dollar in average gets paid from every hospital bill. So the, what is the big gap? Is that the communication gap between the consumer and the healthcare system is broken. Right. Patients complain that it's intransparent, it's inconvenient, um, it's unfair. Hospital complain that the patients complain on social media or write letters to the CEO and don't pay. Okay, it makes total sense because if you compare right now the experience for any single patient to the experience what the patients have in other industries, these on-demand industries, right? There's a big gap. So what are these on-demand technologies? They're literally, they're all personalized, they're all immediate, they're transparent, and then they're fair. So what is healthcare billing? It's neither of that, right? Right, a mass. <laughs> it's definitely definitely not personalized. When you, when you right now, um, uh, Keith, you look into your um, Amazon account, it looks different from mine, right? Right. Or your yeah, Net Netflix account. Exactly. Your Netflix account, the recommendation is very different from mine. But healthcare bill looks exactly everything the same, whether it's a $10 co-payment that you forgot to pay or an $800 um, co-insurance that you have to pay after a bigger surgery. That makes no sense, right? So personalizing all of that was really the important piece. Um, so all of that together draw us to this, what is the problem? What is the solution for that? Had the hypothesis and then it comes to, okay, let's, let's get it done and let's get it doing. And then comes the second part of your question. That was a long way in it answer to your first question. The second question was, what, of course, the difficulties and, and obstacles and why haven't other people done that, right? And it's a very, very relevant question. So the first is, of course, um, regulation. Um, healthcare is very, very regulated. Um, and so is payments. So you're in the intersection of both. And that, of course, is a nightmare in the beginning. The second thing, um, in order to really be uh, build a company in healthcare, I would say it's almost more important to understand healthcare than to understand general business because incentives sometimes are really messed up in healthcare. So understanding healthcare is definitely helpful. Um, the third is just being, I think, knowing about the magnitude of the problem. I worked in healthcare before. I was not aware of the magnitude of the problem. We are talking about $360 billion being involved every year and 150 billion dollars being collected from hospitals to patients it is an amazing staggering amount nobody knows crazy. about this number i definitely yeah. didn't. it's crazy the size of the price nobody really i think it's very tough to know um and then comes of course the the last thing which is more this execution piece in order to to do a business with hospitals you need to be absolutely excellent in the go-to-market in order to develop a product that really works well, you need to be excellent in technology because you need to integrate into all of these EMR systems, the electronic medical record systems, pull the data, manipulate the data, present it to the patient, patients interact with it, and then you push everything back into these electronic medical records systems. That's an extremely difficult data and, um, uh, and engineering problem. So you need to excel in both. And that combination, of course, is not that often. Now, how did you meet your co-founder? 
Um, through our first investor, uh, Thrive Capital, um, they let our series um, seed and um, they introduced me to my co-founder. So it was pretty clear in the beginning, because I come more from the commercial background and the business background, that I don't really want to get started with the company without a very strong co-founder on the technology and product side. Because no fantastic engineer will want to join me when I start a company, because I'm not an engineer. So. The best engineer will think, okay, is this a sales-driven uh, company or is this an engineering plus sales-driven company? And if it's only me, it's probably, yeah, the former. And how did you come up with the name and then secure the .com, which I was you know, impressed by? Oh, that's an interesting story, actually. So, 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 the, so the name came um, much more on, uh, we, we discussed what could be interesting uh, to name the company, it was clearly that it has to be something abstract because our vision is much bigger than just paying the bill. Mm -hmm. So we want to have something abstract and want to be the connection between patient and the healthcare system at some point. Um, it is a very serious topic. So it should be something calming, soothing. Um, cedar trees are associated to healing. Um, it is a five letter word. We really wanted that. It's very good to make some marketing around it, to play around there with, with the design elements. Um, and then, um, yeah, last but not least, uh, I can pronounce it as a German. <laughs> so, <laughs> there were, so there were a few names where I said, okay, I veto those because I cannot pronounce it. And Cedar is at least, you hear that I have my accent, but <laughs> it's not as bad as others. Um, and then, then to your point and how we got the domain, that was, of course, one very clear thing. We said, okay, we want to have the .com domain. Not easy because, mm -hmm. we, of course, it was taken already. So we chased down the owner uh, was in uh, somewhere in England, a company actually, and that company didn't even know that they own this. So we got in, in touch over LinkedIn with an ex-employee of that company who had registered it. He said, oh, I left the company already. I introduced you to somebody. And then after talking to, I don't know, that many people, we were able to purchase it from them for a reasonable price. Yeah, reasonable. Um, well, that's crazy that they didn't even know they owned it. So that, that certainly helps in terms of negotiating. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, you've got the name, you've got some funding, you've got a great co-founder, you know, you start to build product. How do you, how do you get that first early adopter customer? Cause this is a big gnarly thing. That's their livelihood. It's payments, right? It's getting their bills paid. Definitely an incentive to get paid, but geez, we're going to take a risk with this company that hasn't done it before. So how do you get that going? Yeah, it's, it's of course, in, you know, in enterprise technology, this minimum viable product doesn't really work right. because you need to comply with a lot of security. You, you really need to have a product that is in place already before you get. The good thing is we didn't really see a market risk. We know it's messed up right now. And in general, if you have a product that works well, customer, and, and you are good in sales, of course, then at some point. I think people will buy it. So we started developing the product and that's more than the typical three months MVP or so design. So it took us literally, I think nine months or so to come up with the very first product. So when looking for a client who wants to adopt it, we basically looked for what are the most innovative healthcare leaders where that have, let's call it a medium sized scale that are relevant enough for our future market, but are also not right now the juggernauts, the biggest that have the most policies and processes in place. Mm -hmm. So we look for that. Of course, it should be somewhere um, geographically close to us because in the beginning, you really want to learn and develop with this um, alpha client. 
um, yeah, secured that uh, the client, um, um, and it was a client where literally the CEO really has a good vision of what they want their patient to have an experience. And they took the leap of faith. Uh, we actually got almost, I would say, two clients at the same time, and then started co-developing with them. Um, but of course, it's not easy because you're literally selling your vision. You're selling, of course, mock-ups of your product, but the product doesn't work. So in the end, it's more you're selling yourself at the company. And if the client has the conviction, okay, this person is going to figure it out, even though not everything is figured out, then you won. And obviously, uh, you had success because Cedar has accomplished a lot since then. You just announced a Series D round of funding fairly recently, so two hundred million, and that's you know less than a year from your Series C. So, bring us up to speed on, on where the business is. Like, where's the core product? Like the you know what, how you're going to market now? Like the, the latest on your business? Sure, happy to to share a bit about this. So. Um, overall, just a recap of what we are doing. So we started basically with this post-visit billing experience to bring that to the 21st century, to make it more immediate, more transparent, personalized, and fair. That worked out pretty well. So we saw that patients love it. 96% of the patients give us four or five stars, extremely high ratings. Um, but we saw that the patients have other problems besides paying their bill. So we expanded our product after the visit with, for example, insurance capture, charity care applications, workflow, um, 24 hours, um, automatic chat functionality to literally solve the problems of the patients after the visit. Then the next step came, okay, they also have problems before the visit. So we launched our pre-visit to have the end-to-end Cedar suite. So to guide the patient through the entire visit experience from check-in to a eligibility check, taking a picture of the insurance card, prepayment of the co-payment, estimation, and then of course everything in the back. So all of that um, we launched. Um, yeah, pretty successful. We have right now 35 health systems as clients. More than 10 million, um, uh, more than 10 million patients use us, processing more than a uh, billion dollars every single year in patient payments and improving yeah, the lives of, of a lot of patients so that they can focus on getting healthy and not needing to worry about their financials, which we think is very important. So with all of that, um, of course, um, we raised our Series C last year, was in the second quarter when it was a very difficult time, uh, second quarter, because as you can imagine, all the hospitals shut down. It was very tough for us to get new sales. So it was very tough for us to get integrations done. Um, with the health system for um, for setting up these clients. But very quickly, then it shifted around and the hospitals looked forward. Everybody knew, okay, this, this crisis, which is a humanitarian crisis, it's a terrible crisis for every single one of us, but this will accelerate the digital adoption. And health systems right now need to make a shift into the new world. Mm-hmm. And how is that? It's not by sending paper statements. It is by making the next level of uh, of digital adoption so q3 q4 of last year have been a huge uh, demand on our services and our products and the same for q1 of course so really accelerated our growth so that we said okay we know right now where to invest money in and that's the reason why we raised our series d um, in order to accelerate our growth increase our team um, increase also or, or just enhance the products that we are building What's the size of the team now? Uh, we are around 200 and odds. Yeah, maybe 25 people in total. Okay. 
And like one of the things that um, if you go through your website and if you go through your social media, you talk a lot about building a diverse and inclusive workforce and that, you know, the culture is something that you can tell you spend a lot of time thinking about. So um, like what's the role of the CEO as it relates to building that type of culture where, you know, DEI initiatives are, you know, front and center? Yeah, I, I love that question because I'm very, very passionate about this. And um, when you look at what, what are our, why did we start the company? And we started the company because we want to help patients. That's fundamentally why we started the company. And that's on how we define success. When you look at our patient profile, they're extremely diverse. They are from young to old, from affluent to um, patients in hardship. They are just all over the place. So we need to, of course, in order to understand them and to serve them, also have a diverse team. That's the very first thing. The second thing we strongly believe is that that diverse teams make better decisions because coming up, coming with different opinions brings us more creative. If you just think mainstream and everybody is exactly the same and has the same way of approaching problems, that makes it extremely likely that you go at some point in a direction and don't see right and left. So I actually think it's much much more protective way to literally run your business. And then of course, look at the pool of talent that you, um, that you um, attract when you're really focused on uh, D&I. You're attracting all of a sudden a very diverse group of, of people. So that means you can hire in every single subgroup or every single community. That's of course fantastic and a huge competitive advantage for us. And then the, the very last piece on, on, on why I care so deeply about this, I'm spending 12 hours a day probably at work and I want to enjoy my work and I enjoy it and I get enriched from working with a diverse set of group of people. And all of this is only the responsible of the CEO. You cannot outsource that. You cannot hire a chief diversity officer. Nobody takes you serious. If it doesn't come from the founder and the CEO, nobody will take care of that. And um, of course, that means the CEO doesn't need to do everything. But the ultimate responsibility is with the CEO. So we are always circling on who is the DE and I, we call that C diversity, who's the champion of that. Right now, I'm the champion. So that means that I am basically driving a lot of initiatives on how we can create a more inclusive working environment and attract a more um, diverse group of people. And the other thing that I've, I've seen that's part of your culture is transparency. And you take it to the point where you share the same board meeting deck with all the employees. So, so talk, talk about that. Yeah, and, and of course, those are things that, that also come a bit from the past, right? So I've, uh, in my past experiences, um, the companies have not been the most transparent. So what is very, very um, demotivational for anybody who is part of this company. So why do people join a startup? It's not because um, of pay. It's not because they have a great lifestyle. Startup work-life balance is not good. It's just what it is. You cannot move mountains if you have your nine to five job. The startup cannot pay the most, but you need to be aligned with your mission. And that's the most important piece. And how do you do that? You need to feel part of the company. 
So everybody is, of course, a shareholder of the company, an option holder of the company. And how can you right now give somebody the trust if you don't share the transparency? It's absolutely impossible. If there are a few people that know what's going on and what's being discussed, that's immediately an asymmetry of trust. And people won't trust you anymore. And there are always some moments where you just basically need the trust of your team because you are making a difficult decision. And those are the moments where you can, I would almost call it, withdraw the trust because you just need to make a decision. Half of the company thinks this, half of the company thinks this. You know that half of the company doesn't agree with you. You still need to make a decision. Those are moments where, of course, the trust plays an extremely big role. How do you generate trust? Transparency over time. So we, we strongly believe is that you need to be very transparent. So the board meetings is one thing. Um, everybody knows exactly our revenue numbers. Everybody knows how many patients are paying. Everybody knows what are our latest sales pipeline or sales numbers. And we strongly believe is that the people feel ownership of the company. And of course, hey, it's super important because what happens right now if I get hit by a bus? What happens if I become sick and I'm out of the office for some time? The company needs to be independent of me. And you can only do that if people think that they own Cedar. So we strongly think that this is the most sustainable way of running a company and also the most fun. I'm sure it helps during, you know, back in March of last year, everyone just was like, scared, right? Not knowing what's going to happen. You know, the board meetings were like, you need to have runway for three to five years, never mind the next 12 months, 24 months. And then I'm sure like being open and transparent with your employees helped them, even though it was an incredibly stressful time for everybody, the founders, the employees, anybody, uh, that at least they knew the reality of the business and where their job stood. <laughs> 100%, you're totally right. And it was, it was a moment where no, in hindsight, it's very easy because you just say, oh yeah, it was only for a few months or so. When this hit, nobody, the first thing you look on your bank account, you assume that revenue goes down to zero and you see how long do I have? <laughs> it's as simple as that. It's not rocket science. And then of course you need to make the map. What is right now your business decision on that? And our very first communication was, this is a situation we have no idea, just transparent. We shared with everyone, we have no idea what's going on. And people respect that if you say you don't know what's going on. But we also told everyone that we are not going to act right now hyperactively. And we guarantee that we will not do any furloughs, any layoffs in the next three months. We just said nothing is going to happen in the next three months until we know what's going on. Immediately we said that. That was literally in days after, after we shut down. And I think that gave everybody um, at least the, yeah, the mindset, okay, the leadership is really thinking about the long-term and is not doing any, any short-term decisions that might, that might. I also told everyone that before we do any layoffs, I reduce my salary to zero. And we would do that. Um, we slowed down for a few weeks hiring where we basically said, okay, non-existential non positions right now. Let's maybe slow down. But this was for a few weeks. And then, of course, immediately when we had a line of sight of our Series C, which was still in the middle of the pandemic when nobody was hiring and a lot of companies were laying off, 
we accelerated hiring. And that was one of the best things, of course, that happened to our business, that in, in a period where a lot of companies stopped hiring or laying off people, we were aggressively hiring. And we got amazing talent over the last 12 months, exactly because of that. And, and it was like that unique window of opportunity for talent because it wasn't performance related layoffs. It was just purely saving cash and keeping the runway intact. And there was just amazing talent on the market that, you know, if you were able to hire, it was a unique window. Exactly. And, and that's what you, of course, as a, uh, as a company need to decide, right? Raising money wasn't a great time, to be clear. <laughs> it was tough. Right. Every venture capitalist told you, oh, we are open up for business. Uh, no, it was not the case. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and um, would it have been easier yeah, to wait another three months or six months? Absolutely. The terms would have maybe been a little bit better. But you know what? We got an absolutely fantastic investor with Increase in Horowitz. We are very, very grateful that they stepped up and that they were excited about the business they didn't care about the short term it's just they thought about okay where will the company be in five years and a five years horizon actually just got accelerated and got even better and that of course was was i think was really really good for us because we could invest in growth in that time that was really difficult one of the things that you talked about was you expanded your platform. You know, you kind of started in one area and you expanded. So one of the things that founders may struggle with is when is the right time to start doing this? Because when you're first starting out, your plan is X and we're going to build this product X, but then all of a sudden some customers are like, well, we need Y and Z. And all of a sudden you're like, uh, you're going to pay me for that. Okay. I'm going to build Y and Z yet you lose sight of X, what you originally set out to do and you become you know, uh, not good at any of them. So, so when do you make the decision to start to expand that platform product offering? Yeah, it's, it's very tough. And, and this situation that you explain happens again and again. And yeah, the, the, the result is you become a consulting shop for one customer. Extremely dangerous. And it's way more a problem in an enterprise than anywhere else, of course, because they literally tell you, I pay you a million dollars per year if you build me X, Y, Z. As a, as a newly found startup, a million dollars, you say, oh my God, that's great. Our runway. runway gets longer. It's an interesting problem, but then it's a problem for this one. So there are a few things on how we mitigated that. The very first is we did not take any strategic money. So a lot of startups fall into this trap that they say, I'm taking strategic money because then I get a commercial relationship that helps me to accelerate the growth as a case study. And then I take that to everything else. We did not do that. We went the hard route. So that means taking money from venture capitalists and trying customers to buy our product instead of investing in us. And that tells you very clearly what they need. The second thing is you need to make the hard decisions. You need to make the hard decisions of literally saying, this is something that is interesting, but we cannot build you. Because we only build something that is product and that is not consulting, right? So it means basically it needs to make sense for a lot of customers. Um, and that, of course, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy, but it is one of the most important things. Yeah, you, you, you have to do. When it becomes more um, established, the company, so you know you have product market fit with one product, and that is what, what Cedar had with the Cedar Pay. 
Cedar Pay is literally our um, uh, flagship product. Then, of course, you see at some point, okay, how can I right now go deeper and solve the problems better of these patients? And then you layer products on top of it. But that needs to become after you have product market fit and, um, yeah, and have, of course, the clients already where you can layer it on. What are, what are three apps you can't live without? Okay, so right now it's definitely Slack. No chance without Slack. That's, I would say, for the work-related one. Um, my uh, wind alert, which is for my kite surfing. So I love kite surfing on the weekends. I need to know where the wind is and whether it's enough for kite surfing. I definitely think, they, think that is important. Um, and then may, maybe as a, yeah, I would, I would say as a, as a third um, app is my pilot app. So I really fly, I, I fly planes a lot and I have a Garmin pilot app. That is really something that made the entire aviation experience so much better. Um, Garmin pilot, Slack for work, and then wind alert for kite surfing. So how often do you get to go kite surfing and then how often do you get to fly? Uh, almost every weekend, because usually that is kind of linked because you chase the winds <laughs> with, your, with, a, with a plane. So <laughs> you go somewhere where you can kite. Yeah. And it's, of course, here, here in the Northeast, we are based in New York. It gets pretty cold, um, but I have a very thick wetsuit and even love the, the winter for kite surfing. Uh, it looks like so much fun kite surfing. Like I've, I've watched it many times and uh, I mean, you got to be in crazy good shape to be able to do that too. I'm, I'm not sure about that one, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do a lot of exercise um, for sure. Yeah. Um, I run during the week because I think it's, you know, when you, when you start a company, you are on 24 seven and it's a mentally extremely stressful to do that. Mm-hmm. And you need to, if you want to go long, you definitely also need to stay in good physical shape because that gets your mind a little bit away from, from the work. So every morning I run for an hour and then on the weekends I do my kite surfing. Nice. What about uh, book or podcast recommendations? Um, yeah. So um, book recommendations, there, there are a few books that I really love. So uh, about entrepreneurship, I think there's one that I really like, which is from uh, Sam Walton. Uh, made in america really love that in terms of of just leadership um andy groves only the paranoid survive is really great i even like this only the paranoid survive more than high output management um i love the advantage from patrick uh, lencioni that's really interesting uh in terms of maybe healthcare, i love uh catastrophic care from david goldhill that's really good um, and then maybe one of the, the, the my favorites is Priced Out by Uwe Reinhardt. Hmm. It's also a healthcare um, book. He's an economist, um, extremely inspiring person about um, pricing in healthcare. Really love that. About podcasts. So it's actually all across the line. So I like uh, Lex Friedman's podcast because they're very good on entrepreneurship, um, AI and machine learning, really love that. Um, I low, uh, I like Eric Weinstein's podcast. I think they are pretty thoughtful. Um, I think the Blitzscaling podcast from Reed Hoffman, I think they're good. Um, otherwise, some healthcare podcasts are also really good. 
Well, the, usually I close out the episode with asking what you do for fun outside of work, but we already touched upon that. So uh, I'm going to close out by just saying thanks for making healthcare like the 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 part that just is annoying, which is billing, more consumerish, right? Like the way that Cedar Pay works, and it just brings it into the modern era of how things should be done. So thanks for what you're building. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's a it's long road ahead of us. We have 0.6% of the market right now. So we'll talk again in five years and we're probably still at the beginning. <laughs> there you go. Thanks for having me, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.